This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have James Lyonsweiler. Uh, he's an author. He's a scientist. He's been working on uh, several books that talk about his experience in biomedical research, uh, genetics, organismal and molecular biology, etc. And we're going to talk about uh, what's going on right now with uh, with vaccines and COVID. So. James, thanks for coming. Richard, thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and, um, you know, then fast, fast forward to today, like how has the nature of your work changed in regards to the past two years and what's going on with COVID? Well, my background is in evolutionary biology, but after I did it one year of my, my postdoc at Penn State University, I decided to go into biomedical research. So I finished a year's research on the study of gene expression using what are called microarrays, where you can measure thousands of genes at a time in a tumor to see which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off. And I spent the next 20 years of my life in the Department of Pathology, the University of Pittsburgh, the uh, Cancer Center, University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. I was in the Department of Biomedical Informatics. I, I taught graduate students. I advised graduate students conducting research. And what I did was so popular in the way that I approached the problem of asking questions about data that uh, the University of Pittsburgh decided that I should be the director of a, um, of a core, a research core. I proposed to the dean of the School of Medicine that I do this, part because everyone was asking me to help them with their studies. And I'm not a biostatistician, but I wasn't, my, my graduate students were, could code, and I had hired data analysts and programmers to work under me. So I segued over to that and ran that for a good number of years, and all told at the University of Pittsburgh, I was involved in over 100 research studies. Most of the data that we analyzed and the results that we generated went into grant proposals. A bunch of it made it into peer-reviewed studies, and it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I'm not, I went into science because I'm curious about learning things. So by immersion all that time, I, I learned a lot from pathology. I learned pathology diagnostics. Uh, it's called evaluation science for molecular diagnostics. I learned a lot about the molecular basis of cancer, uh, the pathophysiology of disease. And, uh, and when COVID hit, I uh, just applied everything I knew to the nonsense that I saw coming out of mainstream media that mm. was being pushed out by CDC and FDA. Uh, it's pretty straightforward transference over to that. So what, what do you consider to be uh, some of the nonsense? 
nonsense that's, that came out early. And then, you know, we can put fast forward to today. Yeah, if you go look at my contributions, if you go look at my contributions, um, I was one of the first scientists to publish anything about the pathophysiology of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And specifically, I studied whether or not the virus itself and the proteins of the virus were going to cause autoimmunity. Uh, did they have the capacity? And Harvard University validated my peer-reviewed study. I published in April 2020. That's three months after the virus really hit. I mean, practically no one knew about it at the time. And, uh, you know, in February, some of the nonsense that was coming out is that, you know, there was a PCR test that was quantitative PCR, which means that they actually used a negative control that came out of uh, Germany. And 44 countries adopted it, and CDC refused it and decided they were going to develop their own, which put a 30-day 30, 30 delay in contact tracing and testing, but then they shipped out a flawed test. And everything that's gone wrong with COVID in the United States has is, is been due to the CDC shipping out their flawed test. Because the only thing they could do, you know, their, their test had false negatives and false positives. They tried to twist the words around and say, well, wait, no, the test is too sensitive. And no, the test is not too sensitive. It finds COVID, you know, it finds the virus in an empty vial. It's not sensitive. That's a lack of specificity. I, I had a couple of questions about the PCR test. What are the biggest levers to, you know, to create false positive, false negative, or accurate result? Is it cycle threshold? I mean, what are the levers that make the test either a good or bad test, or is it just inherently a bad test? Some of the literature says that the false, there are false positives that can occur due to things like kit emanation, but that's not what's really happening. So when the cycles are done in the PCR reaction, if you take any person anywhere with almost any primers and you run that machine out to 45 cycles, you're going to see that it, you're going to see that it amplifies something. It's called off-target, non-specific amplification. Now, it's not obviously going to be anything. You could literally create random primer sets of the primer pairs and, and you would get an amplification. So, I mean, these people are not stupid. So they, they, they decided they were going to use two, two or three different primer pairs for redundancy, right? But the, the problem is that every pair of primers will give you push through amplification on any organism that has a genome. And, and so when they did this, they, they made a, a, a terrible mistake by put, shipping up a flawed test. And, and in order to try to capture as many cases as they could, they decided to make the test as sensitive as it possibly could be at the expense of specificity. In other words, if you set the threshold all the way up to 40 or 45 and you allow tests to be called positive at that high level, first of all, that's not how you do RT-PCR. You're not supposed to have a universal threshold for everyone. The same kit in different laboratories would give different optimal thresholds, right? So there's a lot of variation there. I did a quick Excel calculation. If yeah. you had one, you know, let's say viral particle and you, you cycled it 30 times, you get 536 million. If you cycle it 45, you get seven and I don't know, five, six orders of magnitude higher. But I've never seen anyone say, okay, we're starting with, uh, you know, how many viral particles are needed for you to be quote unquote infectious or sick one a billion a trillion and well the infectious or sick is, is the right question right so you have infectious or sick and the second then you have whether the virus is virus is present or not and and you know from, from a public health perspective it makes sense to want to know if the virus is present or not so we're still 
just asking the question, is the virus present or not? It was this, what, part of the nonsense was that CDC decided to equate the presence of the virus with the disease. In other words, if they detected the virus using PCR, that means you had COVID, which doesn't make any sense. But, you know, they, they did it because they, they ship out that flawed test, so they biased it towards the false positives um, so that they could miss as few cases as possible. But whoever made that decision didn't really understand the cost of the false positives is huge. When, when you have a low prevalence infection or a low prevalence condition like cancer, and you try to do set up a cancer screen, it would be great if you could just have a test that screened everybody and said, hey, we're going to find cancer in everybody, like a CT scan. Everybody gets a CT scan once a year. We're going to find all the cancers. We'll do what we got to do, no problem. The problem is that you have false positives, and those false positives then are followed up clinically just as if they're true positives. And with, say, this, the CT scan, you're going to do a bunch of biopsies, and you probably kill more people with hospital-acquired infections through biopsy than you would save from cancer. And so with, with, with COVID, the false positives on the test then lead to things like shutdowns, shutting down an entire country. They lead to things like people thinking that they had the virus when they didn't. And now they think they have natural immunity, but they don't. So they go, they go to large gatherings and they get infected. You know, it, it, it leads to a whole lot of costs that public health and medicine doesn't really have to deal with. Ultimately, they don't, the, the, the cost is on society. And so that's why we created a consortium called NATAC, the Nucleic Acid uh, Technology Evaluation Consortium. We're collecting public funds to sequence patients that test positive with PCR per the CDC's protocol uh, to determine whether the virus is even, even present or not. And the preliminary data that we have, that we've looked at, it's not our data, it's published by Pfizer, ironically, is telling us that there may be as high as a 91% false positive rate. So this, this is widely known in molecular diagnostics. That you shouldn't do a screen that, that, that has false positives if the prevalence of the condition is low, because you're going to have, you know, a huge amount of false positives. You have to deal with those somehow. And so, you know, yeah. that's part of the nonsense that we see. And then, you know, all, all of the shutdown of the early treatment so that there is room on the, on the clinical landscape for a vaccine. That was nonsense. That was deadly. That, that's all nonsense. But, uh, you know, the, the question is, where do we go from here? We have Omicron, Omicron with 91% false positive potentially. What is it? Well, it turns out that those rapid antigen tests, right, that everyone's now going to be forced to use, apparently, it'll detect the common cold, HKU1, per the FDA's documents. It, it, so what are we doing? What, why are we saying, oh, these kids have COVID? They're going to the hospital with a respiratory virus, like influenza. They test them for COVID. They give them COVID. This is what they've been doing from the beginning. People that have influenza A, influenza B, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, that is, people with para-influenza, people with and bacterial pneumonia. They get a positive COVID test. Oh, you've got COVID. So if you test positive for COVID, you should probably want to have your sample sequenced to determine if it's really a virus so you get proper medical care. It's just logic and reason. They, they, they had an agenda to push towards the vaccine, and it was all roads will lead to everyone getting vaccinated. And right. it, got out of, got, it got out of hand. Yeah, and then turning to uh, the vaccination, you know, they've they've redefined what herd immunity is, they've redefined what a vaccination is, they redefine everything. On the vaccination side, you know, mRNA, I guess this was the first time that that technology was called vaccination when it, it looks like documentation shows that it was called gene therapy until this application. 
what what are your thoughts and experiences with the the vaccines of our the vaccines actually scientifically now i subscribe to the understanding looking at the scientific literature especially work coming out of france by of a guy named Jacques Fantini and his team. He's an academic professor, research scientist. There's genetic variation in this vaccine right from the beginning. I'm sorry, in the virus right from the beginning. With Wuhan sequence, there was no antibody-dependent disease enhancement. There was no ADE. With alpha, there was no ADE. But according to Dr. Fantini's extensive computational analysis and bioinformatics analysis, modeling the interactions between the antibodies produced against Wuhan 1 and the different variants that have come out. We've had antibody-dependent enhancement capacity from vaccine-induced antibodies ever since the vaccine came online. The, the genetic variation that was there to begin with was, was in beta. So the, the beta strain had the capacity to have a problem with disease enhancement through vaccination, according to Dr. Pantini's and his colleagues' extensive research. They analyzed over a million SARS-CoV-2 uh, sequences. And what he's, what he's saying is that the Asian population actually had immunity to SARS-CoV-2 by and large due to the extensive spread of SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003. And so hmm. we had beta come out, we had gamma come out, and then when Delta came out, that came out just about the time that they were going to vaccinate in, in December. And he says specifically that the vaccination pushed Delta like wildfire through Europe in a way that was more deadly. People think Delta is more deadly. Delta is not inherently more Delta. Delta in a vaccinated population is more deadly. And mm -hmm. the, the actual interactions, he models the interactions between the spike protein on the virus and the cell surface and the antibody and some raft proteins. And he comes up with the conclusion that, hey, we've had the capacity for ADE ever since beta, but they didn't happen until they brought the vaccine on. So with Omicron, you know, we're seeing what we think are milder cases, but they ramped up testing, huge. So if you ramp up testing and you have a whole bunch of false positives and the rapid antigen tests will pick up the common cold, HKU1, then maybe Omicron's not that different. But we know molecularly it is different. We know that there's been both antigen drift, that is mutations of the spike protein, and antigen shift. There's a segment of the spike protein missing. We know biologically that the in culture, SARS-CoV-2 Omicron doesn't create what are called syncytia. It doesn't have the ability to fuse cells together. With multiple, they, have, they end up having multiple nuclei. That means that the pathophysiology of the Omicron is very different. Mm. It may be more mild, but with antibody-dependent enhancement, I think we're going to see unnecessary pathogenicity eventually. I would, I would hasten to say that the idea that pushing mandates like you wouldn't believe in Washington, I guess they're going to put out a task force that will force vaccinate families, isolate and force vaccinate families that refuse the vaccine. I just read that today. Where, all over the U.S. or in certain Washington, states? Washington. Washington so, State or D.C.? D.C. D.C. They always yeah, use insane. Washington, D.C. to try out these unsavory tactics first to see if they can get away with it. So so, what, so if this, you know, if the science doesn't support, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if it's fair to say the science doesn't support any of this. What is driving this, uh, this insanity? Yeah, the, mon the monetary incentive is massive. 
and the and the power that they have with the money that they get. First of all, you've got a liability-free product, right? Second, right. the government pays for the development of the vaccine. Third, the government pays for the, the production, distribution, shipping. The government does your marketing for you. You kind of have to be crazy not to go into the vaccine, you know, if you're in medicine, if you have the capacity mm. to, make, to to invent things. Because it is the best deal on the market. It's the best. You, my God, the return on investment is huge. Absolutely. Well, I see. What about the um, the physiological effects of this stuff? You know, I've seen the VAERS database, which shows, I guess, in the U.S., like over a million serious adverse events and 30 some odd thousand deaths. And then in yeah. Europe, you know, the numbers are even greater. But have you seen any studies or anything that that uh, is showing you the effects of uh, of the vaccines beyond this? Or what, what are you seeing? Well, not only have I seen it, but I've, I've actually funded studies through IPAC, the Institute for Pure Applied Knowledge. Dr. Jessica Rose is a research fellow at IPAC, and she has published extensively on her analyses uh, and these uh, the number of deaths, uh, the number of all types of adverse events are, are through the roof. There's more deaths in the vaccine adverse events reporting system now attributed, uh, well, that follow the COVID, COVID vaccination than all other vaccines combined for 30 years. You have 30 years of vaccinating kids from the age, from the day that they're born until 18, and mm-hmm. then adult vaccines on top of it. All vaccines, all vaccine programs for 30 years. And there's more events by far from COVID-19. And there were more events by far in the first nine months following mm-hmm. the onset of the vaccination. So for someone to say, hey, there's no difference here, this is safe and effective, is absolutely ludicrous. And second, they just moved the goalposts on efficacy. It was supposed right. to stop transmission. It was supposed to make you safe. It was supposed to let us return to normal, right? It was supposed to allow us to go back to work. It was supposed to allow us to go back to school. It was supposed to protect us from becoming infected. And then it was, well, wait a minute, maybe maybe it doesn't prevent transmission, but it'll reduce hospitalizations. Well, f- from July of 2020, we've known that in Israel, there were more people that were vaccinated than going to hospitals than unvaccinated. And the CDC has been cooking the numbers on that very statistic in a number of nefarious ways. And we've published in the journal Science, Public Health Policy and the Law, where I'm editor-in-chief, an analysis by Dr. Henry Ely and colleagues that shows that in March, when they changed the criteria of died with is equal to died from, when they changed the, when they changed the way that you're supposed to mark box A instead of box B on the form when somebody dies, that the CDC specifically did not go through the regulatory hoops that they were supposed to. They didn't check with anybody else. They unilaterally made this change. No other person in the government that had oversight had any say over whether this was a logical and reasonable thing to do. Now, when they made that change, they broke the law. That's the allegation. The people that were involved in this decision made a a grievous error because to say that somebody died with COVID when they only died died from COVID when they only died with COVID is not only just to change the data, but it's also to exaggerate, you know, and make it look much worse than it is. So that then when we get into a serious situation, we don't necessarily know if we're in a serious situation. But, yeah. you know, we're looking at fraud on a massive scale. We're looking at people that basically don't have any business whatsoever in making public health decisions, making those decisions on behalf of us all. 
they don't know what they're doing. They're not expert in molecular diagnostics. They, they, and, and they're fraudsters. If they're going to fudge the data like they've been fudging the data on vaccine safety for 30 years since 1986, why would you want to do that? Can't you go find some some legitimate, good, honest work here in the United States of America? I mean, you know, get the hell out of public health. You're going to fake data. Well, so what's you know you you were talking about in the beginning of the conversation? You've gotten published here and there, and et cetera. I've spoken to quite a few scientists that have been censored, their publications removed, denied, yeah. et cetera. Have you had any trouble on that front? And what's happened to you with, with your work? Once in a while, Twitter and I get into a staring contest. You know, I've gotten slapped on the wrist by Facebook. Um, I've run my own journal, my peer-reviewed journal, Science, Public Health Policy and the Law, is a bona fide research mm. journal. I'm the editor-in-chief. I don't publish in my own journal, but I will peer-review my colleagues' works. And uh, you know, Jessica's work was peer reviewed by um editor on the editorial board, not me because she works with IPAC the last one. You know, I follow the I follow the classical model of peer review where the, the, the authors don't know who the reviewers are, the reviewers know who the authors are, they get their comments back, and if the reviewers think it's a pile of crap, we don't publish it. But my style and my nature is text, but I the bringing forth and, and being productive. And so I encourage the reviewers to try to offer a corrective path if there's something wrong. Well, I've, you know, we shouldn't play gotcha. When we're doing science, we should try to help each other out. So, you know, I don't take any funding from pharma. I won't take any money from the government. Bill Gates himself could call me right now and offer to give me $6 billion. I would turn it down cold. I'm, you know, we're funded on a shoestring that I pack from donations from the public and we go project by project. So I, I, yeah, I'm being shot. I've been shadow banned. I can't advertise. I can't buy ads on Facebook or whatever. But, uh, you know, word is getting out there because in large part because of Substack now. Substack is a place where I have a newsletter and I get up at five in the morning and I write from five until eight and I publish almost every day. That thing has taken off. It's called popular rationalism. And I've been writing, you know, blog articles on vaccines and public health issues and other things in science and biomedical research since about 2015. I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. So right now for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181, and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. What do you see as the health effects of, you know, are there studies yet? Is there data on people that have had, you know, one injection of this Crapzine versus two versus two plus the booster or four or five? Like, what are you seeing as the health outcomes? Well, first of all, uh, Dr. Jessica Rose's results were based on some of my initial results that I just put out there on Twitter. Most of the adverse events are seen on the day one or day two of following the vaccine. And now it's funny that the CDC then decided that they're not going to consider you fully vaccinated for five weeks after your first exposure, right? <laughs> so, the, you know, those, it's an open question right now whether the committees that listen to scientists like Tom Shimabakuro, who say that they don't find any adverse events in their data that could be attributed to the vaccine is he actually oh, so you, if you um if you ignore so okay so the cd says like even if you've gotten your your shots they don't consider you vaccinated till five weeks after 
and if most of the adverse effects happen in the first week or so or the first few days, yeah. of course, it's going to look like nothing's going wrong. Right, right. And and what they did, I, I looked at the presentations on this uh, from the VSD data by Tongshin Bakuru at ASIP and Verbach. And he's a pretty slick character because he see first he talks about the people, what happens on vaccine day one of the vaccine, day two of the vaccine, day three, and so on. But then later on in the presentation, he gives the rates for fully vaccinated. And if he's using CDC's definition of fully vaccinated, it means that, you know, two weeks after the single dose, if it's a single dose J&J, you're not fully vaccinated until two weeks after that. And you're not fully vaccinated until two weeks after the second dose. So that's five weeks with, for Moderna and for, for Pfizer. And they don't count breakthrough cases during, I know for a fact, they don't count breakthrough cases during that, those five weeks. So in terms of the efficacy of the vaccine, they're cooking the books on that as well. And now it's catching up to them. They, they, there's, they can't deny it. Ontario, there's more people hospitalized who are vaccinated than who are unvaccinated. But in terms of the, the, the side effects, uh, the adverse events, there's a ton of serious adverse events that we see. And um, the distribution in time is inconsistent with it not being causal, which means they're all clustered near the event, which is consistent yep. with causality, right? So they can't argue that it's not causal. And they have to choose. Either these vaccine adverse events reporting systems support causality or they don't have a pharmacovigilance system set up. They can't, they can't have it both ways. They can't argue, well, theirs doesn't support causality. When we see results, why, why, why can't they just do whatever they want? They have so far. And, you know, everyone's fostered. I mean, all the media and social media have just keep up with the censorship and the lies. So why can't they just keep going forever? And, you know, the general comment, like question like that. Why, why, can't, why didn't Henry VIII go forever? Why can't why, why didn't Nazi Germany go forever? Because somebody stood up. Well, why don't tyrants like Pol Pot go forever? Because the world doesn't like them. They don't like to see abusive, oppressive regimes. And that's what we have right now. We have a tyrannical, tyrannical, oppressive public health regime that has grossly overstepped their boundaries. They have grossly misinterpreting the constitutional powers that are given to them. And they're running roughshod all over science. Their policies have killed more people than the virus. So when you go to the hospital, for instance, they have remdesivir as a treatment. But if you go on the remdesivir protocol, you're not allowed to change any protocol. So therefore, you can't get anything else except for what's on the remdesivir protocol. Uh, otherwise, the hospital doesn't qualify for their $20,000 that you qualify for if you are a patient on remdesivir, right? You can't get monoclonal antibodies if you go to the hospital, regardless of when, you're, when, you're, when, they, when, when your symptoms started. You can't even get an aspirin in the hospital. They won't give you aspirin. They'll give you Tylenol, which is, has hepatotoxicity. Remdesivir has hepatotoxicity, but they'll give you Tylenol and they'll not be concerned about the synergistic effects because, oh, well, it's a protocol. Well, this, this medicine by protocol is killing more Americans than anything else right now, by far. We used to call it iatrogenic disease. Now we're going to call it medicine by protocol. One size fits all medicine. It's fast, it's convenient, it's cheap, but so is fast food. And fast food's killing people too. So... You know, the good news is that doctors and scientists around the country and around the world are standing up, and that's why they can't continue. What do you think is likely to be the outcome, let's say, over the next six months or a year? Based well, on like, most of, like most oppressive tyrannical regimes, they'll overstep their boundaries. Like they just met, we just mentioned, they're going to force vaccinated Americans. They're going to go home to home. They're going to demand your vaccine papers and quarantine you, force quarantine you if you're not, and force vaccinate you if you're not. 
that's going to happen in the United States of America? I don't think so. I don't think that even if they pass a law and, and say, yes, let's do it, their little pilot program of, of uh, this vaccine police state is going to blow up in their face. And I choose that word very judiciously. I hope so. Well, it will. I don't think Americans are going to stand by while other Americans are forced vaccinated, regardless of what your stripes are. Yeah, but I mean, I, you know, I can see already that people are being told, oh, the unvaccinated are the ones that are evil and causing this problem. And I've seen directly, like, families saying, don't come over because you're not vaccinated. Like, I've seen families broken apart over this. I've seen all kinds of fights. Yeah, I mean, me so too. the propaganda is working, and it's really like turning people against each other. But but then the vaccinated know that they're getting sick. The vaccinated know that they're getting hospitalized. The vaccinated know that they're that, that they know other people are vaccinated who are dying. So so what does that tell the vaccinated? The vaccinated who drank the Kool Aid. It tells the vaccinated who drank the Kool Aid. I've been lied to. Something's not right. So they have to put another layer of explanation and justification on top of the of the lies, right? If antibody-dependent enhancement's happening, and I don't want it to happen, it is. I don't. I have people that I love dearly who vaccinated. I don't want them to experience this. We're going to see mass casualties like we've never seen before in the United States among the vaccinated. I'm 100% serious about this when I say God speak to the vaccinated because they're deep, deep shit that this is real. And yeah, every, what do you, what do you there's think every indication happen? that it is. You know, there's there's a certain there's a population that has had. The main two plus a booster. I don't know if anyone's had two boosters. God help them. But what do you think is going to be the health outcome for people that have had one, two, three, four shots? Like, you know, will there be a big difference between them? And what do you think it'll be? So that really depends on whether or not they, they, they follow the early aggressive treatment protocols that are out there to, to help them get a healthy immune system. Okay. If they're low in vitamin D, and they don't have selenium, and they don't have zinc, and they're not taking quercetin, and they're not taking care of their immune system properly. They're not, they don't have high amounts of vitamin C every day. What I think is going to happen is, is the myocarditis is the tip of the iceberg. The myocarditis is, is, is going to be seen to be kind of the new normal. It's going to become normal for people, not just men. It's going to be women too. And it's not just the young men to have myocarditis. It's going to be like diabetes. That's insane. How could that be normal? My God. Well, that's what that's what their propaganda does. But the difference here is that these people lived decades knowing that that's not normal, right? So the, the push is going to be that this is normal, right? So when when you look at what happens with repeated dose exposures to the viral proteins, I told you my first publication on this was April of 2020. When you look at that, there are many ways. That the spike protein itself can cause disease. One of the one of them is to insert itself between heart cells and cause fusion between heart cells, and that those cells die, and the immune system has to go in and clean up those dead cells. Well, that's where the myopericarditis is coming from. But the, the vaccine will become less and less and less effective, and you're going to see more and more and more people just getting sick that are vaccinated. And it's it's now currently undeniable. They can no longer deny, you know, uh, they, they can try to deny. There's a case I was involved in where there was a person in the hospital and I was talking to one of the doctors who was taking care of the person in the ICU. And they said, uh, you know, we, this person really should have been vaccinated. This whole time we've had COVID, we've not seen a single person in here who's vaccinated, who's vaccinated, who went, who went to the ICU or got serious, severe COVID. Well, guess what? I happen to know someone who was vaccinated, who was there at the exact same time. 
Mm. So the person was lying right to my face. The same hospital. Okay. So were they lying or they just were they just were told that it wasn't the case? What what do you think it is? And I think a responsible physician would know the factual truth of there's of a, of a knowledge claim like that, don't you? So they're willfully no, like, I, they were willfully you, they were um, willfully misleading me one way or the other. Well, I can tell you, like you know, I'm in Texas. Um, no one demands masks except medical places now. You go to the dentist, the doc, the primary care. You go to the eyeglass place. They're the only ones that bother you, and they should know far better than most. But those are the ones that bother you the most. So I don't know. It's it just seems like. Uh, just because someone's a doctor. Well, you got to understand. Really you got to understand why why physicians mask. I mean, why you know who wears a mask? And if you've got if you have an if you're an immunocompromised patient and you're in the hospital and people come visit you, everyone in the room will mask except for you. But if you're sick and you're sitting in the hospital bed and you have an infectious respiratory illness, the patient is masked, not everybody else. Right. Why is that? Well, that's because well, a person that's sick might cough and they might throw a loogie. Okay, so a cloth mask and they take and then 95 droplets, man. Now for something like this virus, okay, fine. There's a rule. There's a rule for masking here if you're sick. If I'm sick I, and I have COVID, I want to be masked. I don't want to make other people sick with it. That that would be shitty. Okay, but only if I'm sick. If, I, if I'm not symptomatic, I should be spreading. I'm not vaccinated, right? So when people realize that they're vaccinated and they have as much virus as the unvaccinated and that it doesn't stop transmission, as the CDC has now admitted, and when people realize that they can make other people in their lives sick and that they themselves can be sick and hospitalized, I think that's going to be the predominant kind of blowback where people wake up and they say, what the hell, we've been sold to build the goods. We already saw some, saw some of this happen. That when the July data came out of Barnstable County, Massachusetts, it showed that the, the 72% of people in Barnstable County that were hospitalized with COVID, they're given a diagnosis, they were vaccinated. And if you, if you do the math on vaccine efficacy, if you look at the people that had a single dose, that's 0% efficacy if you had a single dose. If you had the double dose, it was 28% negative efficacy. You 28, okay, there's 28% increase in the risk of having a COVID-19 diagnosis if you're vaccinated. Now, people say, oh, well, that's because it's liberal county, county and there's a lot of people vaccinated. No, the vaccine efficacy calculation already takes that into consideration. So that's when Rochelle Walensky came out and said that the vaccinated still have to mask. There was a huge, huge, huge wake-up call. There were a lot of people that vaccinated and say, why do I have to mask? I was told I wouldn't have to mask, and now I have to mask again. So that, that woke them up a little. That woke up a, a segment of the population. When the vaccinated start seeing their vaccinated loved ones go to the hospital and die, that's when this shit is going to end. That, and, and I hate to say that because uh, I don't want to see it happen. But we know that the vaccine does not target the current variant. It doesn't target Omicron. It didn't target Delta. Right. The vaccine efficacy against Delta was gone. Okay, so other kinds of things, the disease burden that has to be experienced by those people who are vaccinated are things like autoimmunity against any number of proteins in their body because they're exposed to viral proteins additional times with the wrong kind of immune response. What I mean by that, that what we were supposed to talk about, Little Richard, was these kids, how boosting, how boosting uh, is going to be a disaster with kids. You know, kids walk through and breeze through COVID, and they did at least, before the recent Omicron uh, period, and they do it because they have this wonderful innate immune system where the natural killer cells are generic 
antibodies that say, hey, this looks different. You don't belong here, so I'm going to attack you, right? And they get by. They, they get by without a huge metabolic cost of going through a whole big immune reaction to everything that's out there that's different and new. And so it's pretty effective. But as they then age, right, then their immune systems become more entrained to the pathogens that are around them. And it becomes more difficult for them to make new reactions to pathogens that are similar to ones that they grew up with. And so the T cells, they kind of become entrained to a lesser extent the B cells. And what we're looking at then is a bunch of kids that were not getting sick. Now we have a bunch of kids that are hospitalized. They're told that they have COVID. Fauci is reminding people, even Fauci is reminding people that a lot of these kids that are hospitalized with COVID are just hospitalized with COVID. They don't have COVID, so we can't count them. Well, that's been the same from the beginning. And we said that in USA Today said that we were full of shit. And on their fact checkers, they all said that we were full of shit. We were saying, if it's kids, true for the kids, it's true for the adults. But the symptomology of this Omicron is by far more like para-influenza. Right. right? And so that it's possible that SARS-CoV-2 is gone and that we're just seeing false positive cases and that there's a mildness is mostly gone. Right. So the kids are getting sick. They're getting hospitalized, but their hospitalization rates from COVID is still less than influenza from year to year. So kids are getting sick. But we say, oh, all they, they like to report percentages. There's a 50 percent increase. There's a 200 percent increase, whatever. Yeah. OK, so 200 percent of four kids is eight. Right. Or 100 percent increases two to four to eight, whatever. The point is they play numbers with the games to try to scare, scare people. But if you start vaccinating kids and they start seeing antibody production against viruses where they're supposed to not produce the full, the full, you know, let's go to war against this thing because we have a massive infection immune response, the adaptive immune response. Then you're going to start seeing kids that end up with a lot more chronic illness, a lot more autoimmunity. They're, 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 they're basically aging their immune systems faster. And for what? The vaccine doesn't even target the current strain. For what? Do, you know, due to original antigenic sin, uh, antigenic drifting in the in the, mo- in, uh, the spike protein, the shifting in the mo- and then on top of it, I already told you earlier, kids could start experiencing disease enhancement like they did with RSV. Mm. The, the RSV vaccine, they tried to bring on an experimental RSV vaccine. They tried it in kids, and the kids died because of disease enhancement. Right? If it's only well, I mean, vaccinated, we're so, far, we're so if, far down the road. You know, the people that have perpetrated this stuff, like you know. If they come clean, they're going to have, I mean, terrible consequences. I, I don't see them coming clean. Now why, they why, why not? Clean to what they've done. On my popular rationalism Substack newsletter today, I just wrote an article applauding Rochelle Walensky's frank admission that most of the people that are dying from COVID have four or more comorbidities. What the hell is well, that? I mean, look, I, I've seen stuff published by the CDC too. It's just ignored. Well, I mean, it, this one's not being like, ignored. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know what kind of guy you are, Richie. You sound like a Debbie Downer to me. What I'm saying is they're rolling back their propaganda. But oh, the good. problem is the problem is they think that they're going to get away with it. They can't possibly get away with it because 50% of the country is pissed off at them. We've never seen this scale of vaccine risk awareness in the country before. It's, it's, it's millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people. So if if it's only the kids that are getting sick, after the, if, if, um, if it's only vaccinated kids that get sick through disease, disease enhancement, and it's only kids that are vaccinated that suffer the pathogenic priming and get autoimmunity, mm. it can't be explained by anything other than the fact that they're vaccinated by SARS-CoV-2 by vaccines. That's going to further piss off 
more of the Americans, more of the people who are vaccinated. I what hope so. What, what do we have? 60% of the people who got stuck at 60, 65, 70% vaccinated, depending who you ask. So there's 30% that are hardliners saying, doesn't matter what you do to me, I'm not going to vaccinate. Well, the reason why they said, you know what, maybe mandates for kids are not such a good idea. They just said yeah. that. Like The reason why they said that was because they realized that mandates for kids are not going to cause non-vaccinating parents to then line up their kids to vaccinate. They'll just not take them to school. So the only thing that the CDC could experience in and in, in Fauci could experience enforcing vaccination on kids is of the 70% of people that are vaccine friendly, they're going to lose from that percentage if, vac- if, if kids start dying after the vaccine, if kids start getting serious COVID-19. In a world where kids don't get serious COVID-19, it's only going to happen in the vaccinated. It's going to be black and white. It's going to be so clear. You hope so, yeah. I hope no, so. I ho- actually, I hope, I hope I'm wrong. 100% I hope I'm wrong because I don't want to see kids die. I don't either, yeah. It just, you know, like I said, it just is... I've just seen people like completely brainwashed, you know, even if they get COVID after they're vaccinated, they're like, oh, well, it would have been worse if I wasn't. It's just, you know, whatever way, whatever happens, there's just a, a, it seems like a large percentage of people are just so indoctrinated. Anything could happen. They could die the next day and they're like, oh, well, it would have been worse if, uh, you know, if, if you didn't have it. I have two close friends, friends of the family, both vaccinated. They both, they're both dead from COVID. So I'm just saying, it's just going to catch up to them. And and when it catches up to them, they need to go to the frontline doctors. Mm. They, they need to handle their COVID with early aggressive treatment. They need to listen to Dr. Peter McAuliffe. They need to listen to Dr. Pierre Corey. They need to listen to Harvard Reich. They need to listen to the rational, ethical doctors who are rational, ethical every step of the way. Every day of COVID-19, these doctors were there fighting the good fight, speaking the truth, working out the treatment protocols. When people get COVID, they need to listen to the frontline doctors. When pe- if people have long-haul COVID and they're vaccinated, they need to listen to Dr. Bruce Patterson and look up his protocol and find out why you have the long-haul COVID. So there are answers, and it's through podcasts like yours, Richard, that people will find out. So anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you know someone who's vaccinated who's got COVID, please send them this podcast. And okay. please send them to flccc.net. And send them to c19early.com and send okay. them to the ivermectin meta-analysis. Send them to popular rationalism, substack.com. I'm, like I said, I'm glad to interview you and I'm glad that you are providing rationality here. It's just, uh, it's just disheartening. Like I said, when I see all the, uh, you know, all this brainwashing that's going on, it's really, really disheartening. It's frightening to me. It's not disheartening to me. I'm scared for them. I am, mm. I'm terrified about what's going to happen because listen, we've had a political divide in this country. And the people have said a lot of things and they've committed themselves to a particular position. But if you have two or three people in your family vaccinated and you convince them to vaccinate and they die from COVID anyway, then what? Who are you going to blame? People need to yeah. wake up. They need to wake up and they need to realize there's no stigma for not being vaccinated. There's no stigma for being vaccinated. There's no stigma for having the, the virus. There's no stigma for not having the virus. There's a stigma they're sticking to your guns on something that's right in front of you, and you know that it's not true. You know that it's not true. Gibraltar, go read my article on popular rationalism about Gibraltar. I wrote it in November or December last year. Okay. They had no COVID this past summer. Last summer, they had no COVID. <laughs> then they started the booster program, and COVID went through the roof so bad with the boosters. They had to cancel Christmas. Gibraltar. So now what are we seeing? We're seeing vaccines are up. COVID's up. 
They can go look at the analyses that show at the, at the national level. If you look at countries that are most vaccinated, they have the highest new number of cases of COVID. I did an analysis of, this, of the United States, all 50 states. The states that are most vaccinated have the largest number of new cases. Ontario, the largest number of people that are in the hospital with COVID are the vaccinated. And it's not just because there's so many more vaccinated people. You do the math and it's because, well, they're overrepresented compared to what they should be. Yeah. Well, like I said, I would love for rationality to break through and I hope it does. And I'm trying to do what I can by interviewing people like you. So I just hope that it happens. But um, I think also, I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but I don't know if it'll be, if it'll have to be underground, but there's going to be a whole industry of medical professionals that need to help people that have been, you know, hurt by the vaccines. There's going to be millions of people or at least hundreds of thousands, but you know, there's, again, there's going to have to be a whole industry and protocols to help these people. I don't know if they're even helpable. I think they are helpable. If in the, the wet dream of the vaccine activists are that they're going to boost forever. But just do a little bit of math here, some simple math, okay? Simple math tells me that the boosters are not going to be tolerated. So ACIP, the committee that makes recommendations for immunization practices, of course, made the recommendation that 12 to 17-year-olds should be boosted five months after the last dose, okay? So if you do the math, if you're born today in a world with COVID and COVID vaccines, you're looking at 192 boosters before you're 80 years old, okay? Because vaccines don't make it go away. Who's going to get 192 boosters? Who's going to boost every five months? And there's a study out that just came out. It's a beautiful study. It shows that people that were infected 13 months ago if they got serious COVID 13 months ago, they have really, really strong antibodies against the N protein, the nuclear protein, and the S protein, the spike protein. And then it turns out if you have mild COVID, according to their data, you don't have quite the same percentage. You've got about 50%. It's, it's 100% of the people that got COVID-19, serious COVID, are like still immune 13 months later with antibodies. That's huge. Well, we already knew that from people that had SARS-CoV-1 in 2003, they're still immune today. So the naturally immune are safe. Uh, it's about 50% if you had mild COVID, but I'm concerned that that 50% is low because of the false positives with the PCR I told you about, because they, they determined the case confirmation using PCR, right? But ASIP says 12 to 17 year olds should be boosted and they're gonna, who's gonna put, who's gonna put up with 192 boosters? It's not gonna happen. This is why, I'm, you know, it's, I'm not optimistic, I'm just realistic. Well, I'm realistic that the bad things that I've said are going to happen are most likely going to happen, almost certainly going to happen. I'm sad to say that. But then the, the reality will sink in that CDC, Moderna, Pfizer, Fauci, NIAID has sold the United States of America and the world a bill of goods as yep. vaccination is the only way out. Of it. Yep. Yeah, I know. Well, what's what's the best way uh, you mentioned it you know, a few minutes ago, but how can people follow up and find out more than well, if you'd like to support research, you can go to ipaknowledge.org. We're doing a good number of studies there. The study I'm working on right now is the oncogenic potential of the spike protein to, because that wasn't studied for oncogenicity, the ability to... Oncogenic? Oh, Jesus, that's terrible. Yeah. So we're doing that study. If you'd like to read, go to popularrationalism.substack.com. And mm. uh, um, if you'd like to attend classes online with really smart instructors, uh, Go to ipak-edu.org. We're just about to start a whole semester of semester-long courses. It's our fifth semester. We're te I'm teaching a course in immunology. 
there's a course in biostatistics if you want to learn how to analyze data. I'm teaching intro to bio, second semester. We just finished off the vaccine course, and I just finished off a course on environmental toxicology. So these are college level courses for people that want to learn, but don't care if they get a college degree. And they're the best courses that I can put together. And we're hiring more and more instructors. So ipak-edu.org, ipak-edu.org, okay. popular rationalism. So the subscription of popular rationalism is free. And for research, go to ipa, ipaknowledge.org. Richard, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks, James, very much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, which has been sponsored by Echelon. When you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Pitbull. And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners can get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181. Message and data rates may apply. Please see terms for details. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.